All right, well, most of us know each other, uh, but for the sake of anybody who might be visiting with us this morning, uh, number one, welcome. We are glad that you are joining us this morning. Number two, as they've mentioned, my name is Eric. I am not a pastor here. I am, however, a member at PRC in good standing. I've been asked to deliver this morning's message. Uh, Today, we will be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, In this section, Paul is addressing uh, how union with Christ is the only sufficient foundation, power, and goal of the Christian life. This is relevant to the church today, not only because God has already given us all we need for life and godliness in his word, but because these same issues are facing us now. Over the past several years, a dangerous teaching has been growing just beneath the surface of our Christian culture that mirrors what the church at Colossae was facing. Up until this point, God has been merciful to us, PRC. This teaching has not fallen through our church. It has not broken through the doors at PRC yet. But I want you to be prepared. I want you to understand what we are facing as a church, as a culture, as Christians in the 21st century. Um, Because the gospel in Christ, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. That is what our passage this morning declares. Yet these false teachers, this false philosophy, it believes that our primary identity is something other than Christ. They would have us identify not with the life, death, burial and resurrection of our Savior, no. They would have us identify with the color of our skin, our gender, our social status. We must be prepared to fight this battle. In this morning's passage, Paul is addressing the Colossians for a very similar reason. Somewhere around the year 60 AD, Paul received word that the church in Colossae was being threatened by a dangerous and heretical teaching. It was a hybrid philosophy that combined Greek philosophy with Jewish mysticism. And it is my prayer that we learn how Paul addressed this situation in the first century church so that we might be equipped to fight against false teachings of our age that have similar implications. Now you guys can please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will be in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 through 11 as I mentioned. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in the name of your son to worship you. This is something that brothers and sisters throughout the ages have not always been able to enjoy through persecutions and trials and falling away. Lord, professed saints have been killed and martyred in your name. Yet we stand here today in the 21st century, Lord, worshiping the same Christ that was worshiped 2,000 years ago. It is him that we proclaim. It is him that we worship. And it is him, Lord, that we ask you, give us the power to honor and glorify through the preaching and hearing of your holy word. Amen. You, you may be seated. This morning's message will have, of course, three points. Amen. So if you're a note taker, uh, please be ready. Point number one. Christ alone is the foundation of our salvation. Christ alone is the foundation of our salvation. Now, oftentimes the Christian life is portrayed as a list of rules. To be certain, we do have rules, church. But unlike every other belief system that has ever been on the face of the planet or shall ever be on the face of this planet, we don't believe that obedience to those rules bridges the gap between God and man. Christianity teaches that this rift must be bridged by God. And only then, only then will the obedience of his people follow. Good works do flow from salvation. This is important to understand. But because of our sinful hearts, it's easy to read scripture and to deceive ourselves into believing that we can earn our way into the good graces of God. Now, this isn't to say that any of us here actually think this is the case. We are, after all, reformed. This is Providence Reformed Church. We understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But as the reformers proclaimed, the faith that saves is never alone. True faith, saving faith, always results in good works. Not as a way to gain salvation. That is heretical. But as a result of salvation. Today's passage is filled with indicatives imperatives this is just a a fancy way of saying it is filled with the done of the gospel that which has been accomplished on our behalf by our savior and it's also filled with the do that flows out of the reality of the gospel it gives us the facts but it also tells us how we must live in light of those facts See, instead of seeing the power behind the commands, it is possible to read verses 1 through 11 as follows. If you would, put your finger down on verse 2 and try to hopscotch with me down through today's passage to see how not to read the verse. Beginning in verse 2. Set your hearts on things above. Set also your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. 
The problem with reading the passage in this way is not that these commands are bad, church. These are actually very, very good commands. These are the things that flow out of our salvation, and we are commanded to walk in them. The problem is that these are the do that flow from the gospel. These are the actions that flow from what has been accomplished on our behalf. They're the result of a renewed heart. And we are incapable of accomplishing these things on our own or by our own power. By focusing on the do. By focusing on what is supposed to flow out of the gospel. Absent of God's power, we are missing the beauty of the gospel of grace. But I do want you to be built up this morning, church, and I want you to be encouraged by the truth. And the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, that the 21st century American church is not alone in this temptation. They're not alone in the temptation to empty the gospel of Christ's power. This is exactly what was happening in the middle of the first century as well. In writing to the Colossians, Paul sought to protect the church from the enchantment of human philosophies, empty traditions, and outright deceit. This is the testimony of chapter 1 and 2, by the way. And the way he did so was not through his own philosophical ramblings. He did not come at them with philosophy. Paul came against this heresy. He came against these false teachers, against this anti-gospel, with the word of God and the finished work of our Savior. Church, this is the same way we must approach false teachings in our age. We begin, uh, live, and work into Christ. It is all about Jesus. I know this seems so gospel 101, but it is the truth, and we must never forget this reality. It's been said that he, he who forgets the past is doomed to repeat it. This is true. This is very true, and we can see it played out throughout the ages. Wars, hairstyles, philosophies. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us, and it is very true that there is nothing new under the sun. But as Christians, this is only part of the truth. Scripture gives us warrant to go a step further. It allows us to say that not only is he who forgets the past doomed to repeat it, but he who forgets the future is doomed to live like it. We live in the already but not yet. We stand upon the foundation of what God has already accomplished as we await the fulfillment of his future promises. Go ahead and place your finger with me one more time back on verse 1. This time, rather than focusing on the imperatives, rather than focusing on what we are commanded to do in light of the gospel, this time, we're going to focus on what has been accomplished. We're going to, to focus on the done on the facts that lay the foundation for accomplishing the Christian life. Beginning in verse 1. You have been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. You have died, and as a result, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You used to walk in wicked ways, but 
You have taken off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, there's no longer a division between Jew and Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but rather Christ is all and is in all. These portions, church, these portions are the power that come before the commands. These portions are what empower us to live out the Christian life. Verse 1 says that you have been raised with Christ. It doesn't say, and you've got to hear me on this, church. It doesn't say that you raised yourself with Christ. This is something that has happened to you. If you were to look in chapters 1 and 2, you would see that the church in Colossae was being told by the false teachers that they could, through the worship of angels and strict obedience to the Jewish laws and traditions, make some sort of mystical ascent into the heavens. From writers of the time outside of the Bible, we understand a little more about these types of false teachings. They taught, unlike what we read from Genesis this morning, they taught that the physical world was evil, and only that which isn't physical is good. But, just as we read, just as Manny read this morning, we know otherwise. We know that after creation, God looked upon everything he created. Not only did he say it is good, he said it is very good. Do not fall into the temptation of thinking that that which is around you is somehow evil. It's not this, us here specifically. If you were to look around this church, we are who Christ died to save. So who are we to believe, church? Do we believe the philosophers of this age? No, amen. Do we believe that that which is around us that is physical has no value? or is actually unvaluable, is evil. We mustn't believe this lie, church, because it is not true. We obviously, we believe, we believe what God has told us in the scriptures. We believe what is proclaimed in verse one. We believe that we are not responsible for making a mystical ascent into the heavens because, verse one, once again, you have been raised with Christ. Now that's to say, get a little southern on you here. Not that I'm southern either, but this is to say that y'all have been raised with Christ. This verse is speaking in plural. It's speaking to the group of assembled saints as a unit, and by extension, it is speaking to the church as a whole. For this reason, it would be appropriate to render this verse as such. Therefore, since y'all have been raised with Christ, be seeking the things that are above where Christ is presently sitting. Look at this again. It says, this thing that has happened to y'all, church, requires an ongoing present action from y'all, church. Yes, there are implications 
for the individual, seeing that the church is made up of individual members, but the emphasis here is on the church as a body. We must not forget we are a body. We are the body of Christ. Verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If we allow ourselves to lose sight of Christ, to forget about the God-man who created the universe, accomplished our salvation, and holds all things together, then we uh, risk falling prey to the same temptation that Paul is arguing against. The same temptation, mind you, that conquered Adam. Verse 2 flows out of verse 1, not the other way around. Don't flip it upside down, church, please. Whereas the Colossians were being told by false teachers to set your minds on ascending into the heavens so that you might be raised to where Christ is. The gospel says, because you have been raised with Christ, therefore set your minds according to the things that are heavenly. Through this subtle shift of emphasis, the gospel is lost. May this never be the case amongst us, church. Christ is all, and he is in all. And the gospel has given us a command, not a suggestion. A command that was accomplished in the past, is lived out in the present, and looks forward to eternity. A little background information here would probably be helpful. Um, it would be valuable at this point to slow down, go take a deep breath, plant your feet, and let's dig in to what Paul is talking about here. I made the claim just a moment ago that we must not lose sight of Christ. Because if we do, we do fall risk or fall prey to the same temptation that was coming against the Colossians. But who is Christ? If we're to look in the book of Colossians, who does Paul say this Christ is? You see, we jumped in to chapter 3 of this epistle today. But you know, there's a chapter 1 and a chapter 2 that come before this that lay the foundation for what we're talking about. Now, if you were to ask in modern America who is Christ, you would get a lot of answers. There have always been a lot of false answers. If you were to talk to a Mormon, uh, he would say that Jesus is the literal, non-divine offspring of Elohim and one of his many, many goddess wives. If you were to speak with a Jehovah's Witness, they would say that he's a non-divine creature. They would say that he's Michael, the archangel. The Muslims would say that he is nothing more than a prophet, a great prophet, mind you. But he didn't die on the cross or atone for anybody's sins. Your neighbors, they would have answers as well. Oh, he's a good teacher. You know, a great moral example to follow. But once again, what does Paul say? Just like the book of Hebrews and the gospel according to John, Paul begins his entire argument against this false teaching by focusing upon and showing us the divinity of Jesus Christ. If you would, go ahead and flip back one page to chapter 1, and let's start looking at verse 15. 
This is who Paul says Christ is. Speaking of Jesus, he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we don't have time this morning to go over that term firstborn. I had to actually cut that. (laughs) But as it's being used here, it's a title of power and honor. Verse 16, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in Colossians, when Paul speaks of Christ, He doesn't allow for a Jesus who is simply one of many ways to God. He doesn't allow for a host of intermediate beings through whom we can work our way towards God. He tells us very plainly that Jesus is the God of all creation. He is the one who spoke light into existence. He is the one who told the stars to shine. This person, the one with the nail-scarred hands, holds the galaxies in his eternal grasp. While at the exact same time holding together the atoms in your very own body. When he told the rivers to flow, the rivers obeyed him. When he commanded the sun to shine, it did as it was told. But then he made man. And man had the audacity to tell this God no. We too, when we do not walk according to the precepts of our Lord, show that we, in some sense, are still partaking in that very same rebellion of that original man. The old man, Adam. This, this is the Jesus that we must see in today's text. The uncreated God who took upon a human nature, lived a perfect life, suffered, died, passed through death's fiery judgment, collected life on behalf of his people rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and who sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for you, church. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. Church, this Jesus is governing the universe. He is in every way possible. Creator, Redeemer, Judge. This Christ is all in all. Back to chapter 3, verse 2. So why do we do these things mentioned in verse 2? Why do we set our minds heavenward and not on the things that are on earth? 
Verse 3, for you, for y'all, have died and your life is hidden with Christ. This Christ, the creator of the universe, our Savior. Your life is hidden in Christ. With God. And on account of this reality, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is only when Christ appears that we also appear with him. When Christ is revealed, we will be revealed. This action This is passive on our part as well, church. This, once again, is something that happens to you. These verses show us that not only is the history of what has happened, not only the history of what has happened, but they show us how to live now as we await the promise of future glory. And as we are shaped into the image of Christ as individuals, we grow ever closer to one another as we approach our unified glorification in light of this reality in light of who this Christ is and what he has accomplished for us how church can we even begin to think that we can add anything to this salvation we can't yet this is what the first century church was being told And it is the exact same thing that is being implied by the false teachings facing the church today. Christ is not simply a moral teacher to imitate. He is the one true God and the only sufficient foundation of our salvation. On account of this accomplished reality, we ought to be putting to death vile wickedness as we march arm in arm into increasing glory. This leads us to our second point for this morning. Point number two. It is only by looking to what Christ has accomplished that we can overcome remaining sin. Verses five to six. On account of all of this that we have covered so far. In light of the reality of who Christ is, how he has justified us and the fact that we shall be gloriously revealed with him because of this put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming We know, church, that God will not tolerate sin forever. Because he is holy. Because he is good. Because he is love, he must punish sin. And he does this in only one way. Destruction. Either we will be destroyed by being buried with Christ, and that is good news, church. Either we will be destroyed by being buried with Christ or we will be destroyed and spend all of eternity cursing the name of God from the fires of hell. And it is my prayer and the command of God that all repent. 
believe the gospel and be found in him because those who don't remain lost in Adam. Now it's interesting to note, I know this is heavy, church, but there's good news. So stick with me, okay? It's interesting to note how Paul speaks of sin here. We are accustomed to the watering down of language in such a way that it makes sin seem somehow less offensive. What Paul calls sexual immorality, our culture will call a mutually loving and exclusive relationship. What Paul condemns as lust, certain religions tell us, well, you know, that's just, that's just part of who you are. It's neutral, just as long as you don't act on it. Is that what Paul, or is that what Christ tells us? Or does Christ not proclaim that that lust in your heart is in and of itself sinful? It is sin. Brothers, sisters, we mustn't call good or neutral what God has decried as evil and abhorrent. We are not broken. We are not messy. We are not conflicted or making mistakes. Apart from Christ, we are cosmic rebels who have offended a holy God. Apart from Christ, we are sitting in God's lap in order to spit in his face. But, I told you there was good news coming. But, for those of us who are in Christ, church, we are new creations. And as new creations, our identity is no longer drunkard. Our identity is no longer homosexual. Our identity is no longer idolater. Our identity is no longer sin. We are identified by Christ. And this is what Paul goes on to tell us in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, in these, in the evil and wicked things that were just mentioned, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. 8 and 9, but now something has changed. But now, there's been a fundamental shift of your nature. But now, you must put them all away. It's not optional. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene taunt from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Because, because of what Christ has accomplished, Because of that which is done, the done of the gospel, we are commanded and empowered to live out the Christian life. Please don't turn this around. Don't allow yourselves to think that what was accomplished by grace can now be improved upon or finished by your own works. Focus on Christ. Because not only is he the foundation of, of our salvation. But he is the power behind our growth. This brings us to our final point for this morning. Point number three. The only thing that unifies us is Christ. And in light of him, worldly divisions no longer matter. Verses 9 through 11 Seeing that you have put off the old self, think 
Adam, think the nature of Adam here. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, think Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. As I mentioned earlier, there is a sense in which these words apply to us on a personal level. Please don't hear me saying otherwise. As members of the body of Christ, we are to be holy and blameless. But here, even more so than the parallel verse that was read in Ephesians 4 this morning, here in Colossians, our corporate identity in Christ is emphasized. And the words all in all, which are spoken of the Father in Ephesians, are here spoken of the second member of the Trinity, the Son, the new man, the new self, the second Adam. After the fall, after cosmic treason, at that moment when God would have been justified and holy in exterminating humanity from the face of the earth, God opted rather to clothe Adam and Eve with skins. He clothed them with the image of a sacrifice. Where do skins come from, church? He clothed them with the image of a sacrifice, the image of a substitute that was killed for the sake of the man and the woman to cover their nakedness and shame. Rather than allow the man to remain as he was, God was merciful towards the sinners. And he placed upon them the image, not only of a sacrifice, but the image of the promise of future grace. And then he set an angel, I'm sure you remember the story, set an angel with this fiery sword, guarding the way to the tree of life. God promised a future redeemer. A redeemer who was better than the skins of sacrificed animals. He promised a skull-crushing, sin-destroying, death-defeating Messiah and warrior king who would, as Lane Tipton expresses it, pass through that angel's fiery sword and collect life on behalf of his people. He accomplished this in Christ. God promised Jesus. In verse 10, speaking of putting on the new self, the term used in the Old Testament Greek translation of Paul's day for the covering of Adam with the image of the sacrifice, that term carried the exact same root as the word used here in Colossians 3, where it speaks of putting on the new self. It carries with it the idea of being clothed with Christ. We like Adam, are clothed with the image of our sacrifice. But no longer, church, are we awaiting the future fulfillment of this promise of grace. We are recipients of uber grace in its complete and perfect form. We must sink into this new identity and live accordingly. You see, this, 
church is the radical message that sent myriads of Christians to lion pits throughout the ages. This is the radical message that puts saints over burning green timbers. This is the radical message that the God of all creation, the one who holds the universe in his hands and sustains you by the word of his power, the one before whom angels cry, holy, holy, holy. This God, this Jesus, he took upon himself a nature like yours. He lived the life that you were unwilling and unable to live. And he died the death that you deserve. And then he clothes you, not in the shame that you deserve. No. Not in skins that fade with time. He clothed you with the blood of his sacrifice. He has given you a new nature. And he is renewing you in true knowledge according to his perfect image. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Speaking of radical, um, a number of years ago, David Platt released a book by the name of Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. In it, he went on to explain how the life of the Christian ought to look, and he compared it against the way that American Christians often live their lives. In it, he describes foreign missions and the call to the nations, among other things. And these are, as we learned from Pastor Travis's sermon last week, these are necessary. These are part of the Great Commission. Because Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, we go. But we go. But speaking to you individually, this doesn't mean that every one of you individually must be traveling to the Congo. Or to China or to some other distant missions field. This is a call to the church. Uh, So... You don't have to, as an individual, necessarily go to a foreign mission field to experience this radical life, to experience this Christian living. It begins here. It begins in the local church. It is experienced in the local church. If you want to see radical, look around you. Here, we sit as a diverse group of individuals. We have truckers, utility workers, salesmen, and customer service personnel. We have mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, and children. Brown, white, American, European, male and female. We have people who were raised in Christian homes. People who were raised as atheists and people who were pagans. Yet all of us have united here for one common reason. A reason that transcends any of these other categories, church. We sit here every Lord's Day because we are united with Christ. He has become our identity by identifying himself with us. And that, brothers and sisters, is as radical as it gets. While the world around us finds any reason to divide, we unite 
when the world around us fights over who will be our next president, when they pass through the curtain of the voting booth as if it were a holy place in order to implement hope and change or to make America great, we recognize one king who is over all of it. And we are to operate according to his standards. Yes, even in the voting booth. Where the world makes excuses for sin. We fight with every ounce of strength to put it to death. Here at Providence. Here. There's no longer Greek or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There's not American or Mexican, Republican or Democrat, soldier or Green Beret. But Christ is all and is in all. Our proclamation and the proclamation of this text is that the things which divide the world do not define the bride of Christ. There is only one fundamental distinction that divides humanity. Brothers and sisters, it ain't the color of your skin or your gender. You are either in Adam or you're in Christ. You are either of the old self or you're of the new. Dead or alive, sinner or saint. This radical and exclusive truth claim about Christ is the only thing that keeps us together. Without it, we fracture. But because of Christ, because of the gospel of grace, because he is the foundation and the goal of our life, we are equipped to stand firm in the face of any division that comes our way. There's no black church, no white church, no youth church or elderly church, and there is no church that identifies itself with fallen human sexuality. The only true church that exists is the one that was purchased by the Lamb. The philosophies of this world, they tell us that the only way to have unity and to advance into the next phase of progressive humanity uh, is to accept the actions of the sinner and to cozy up to the angels of cultural Christianity. They tell us that we must live in a state of perpetual guilt. And then they vilify us when we actually believe what Christ said. For you, church, for all of the saints throughout all of the ages, it is finished. Do not neglect our common salvation, our common forgiveness, our holy calling. If we do, we will begin to slide right back into the way of death that Christ saved us from. We, y'all, have been redeemed. Therefore, live like it. Don't forget history. Don't neglect the truth of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. But likewise, don't forget the future. We must live in the here and now, 
on the foundation of what Christ has accomplished. Looking forward to the fulfillment of his future promises. Church, you have been justified. Therefore, live justified. This is something that happened to you. You have been sanctified. Therefore, live sanctified. This is happening to you. You have been united in Christ. Therefore, live in unity with one another. Because Christ is the only foundation and power for any of it. Now what we've learned from Colossians today, what we've learned of Christ and his promises, this was only given to those who belong to him. But the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this tells us that all who turn from their sin to trust in the serpent-crushing Savior will be united to Christ. Or rather, they have been. If you've not done this today, I urge you, please, to come. Turn away from death and trust in the King of life. If you come, he will not turn you away He has commanded that all men everywhere repent and believe. Therefore, repent. Come to Christ. Be forgiven of your sins and live. Would you pray with me? Father, today as we approach your table, We are making the proclamation not only with our spirits, but with our body, Lord, that we are one. We do not approach your table to partake of the elements, Lord, as separate entities, as separate individuals who are divided by class or skin color or anything else. Lord, we approach as a unified body who has been saved by grace through faith in your Son. Lord, may that make an impact on us, not only today, but as we go home, as we love our families, as we operate in the workplace. Lord, may this message help us to understand that we are to be, because we are recipients of your grace, Lord, we ought to exhibit that grace as well, especially within the people of God. Lord, we pray this all in the name of your Son, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.